Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. Think of a time when you embarrassed yourself in front of others. Maybe you tripped up a crowded staircase, or you struck out in a baseball or softball game when everything was on the line. Whatever it is, take a second to think of something embarrassing from your past. Think about how that makes you feel. Where do you feel it? Do you feel your cheeks getting hot? Maybe you feel a little bit sweaty. Now think about the thoughts that come to mind when you think of this memory. Are you being hard on yourself? Are there any harsh names that you call yourself when you think of this memory? Now think of a time when you saw someone suffer. Maybe you saw something sad on the news, or you saw a homeless person on the street as you drove by. What was your reaction to that? Thinking about it now, how do you feel? Today, we are going to talk about compassion and self-compassion and how they can help us increase our life quality. So just to define what we're going to be talking about today, compassion is the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Basically, it's an understanding of someone's suffering and a desire to help them so that they no longer are suffering. Kristen Neff is someone we're going to be talking about a lot today. She is the person who has researched this the most, especially self-compassion. She has a website. She has lots of research on this. So we're going to be talking a lot about Dr. Neff and the work she's done. And I want to read a quote from her website that talks about compassion. She says, first, to have compassion for others, you must notice that they are suffering. If you ignore that homeless person on the street, you can't feel compassion for how difficult his or her experience is. Second, compassion involves feeling moved by others' suffering so that your heart responds to their pain. The word compassion literally means to suffer with, which is interesting because as many of you know, if you've listened to the introduction, I speak Russian and the word for compassion in Russian is sestradanya, which is literally with suffering. So to suffer with. So it's the same thing in Russian. Anyways, that's a fun fact for anyone who cares. So when this occurs, you feel warmth, caring, and the desire to help the person in the same way. Having compassion also means that you offer understanding and kindness to others when they fail or make mistakes, rather than judging them harshly. Finally, when you feel compassion for another, rather than mere pity, it means that you realize that suffering, failure, and imperfection is part of the shared human experience. So there's a lot of things that she talks about here that we'll unpack throughout the episode. Compassion starts off by recognizing that someone is suffering. It also means that you offer understanding and kindness to those people when they fail or make mistakes rather than judging them. And finally, compassion entails recognizing that suffering, failure, and imperfection are all a part of this life experience that we're having. So as humans, all of us are subject to difficult things, to pain and suffering, embarrassing ourselves, and making mistakes. So that is compassion. It's having all these shared experience with others. Self-compassion, on the other hand, is all of these elements of compassion, but for yourself. So once again, Kristen Neff, in talking about self-compassion, shares these three main pillars of self-compassion. The first one is self-kindness versus self-judgment. This is being warm, kind, and understanding towards ourselves when we recognize that we have failed or when we feel we are inadequate rather than attacking ourselves with self-criticism. So choosing self-kindness over self-judgment. The next thing is common humanity versus isolation. So as humans, we are all mortal, imperfect, and are subject to mistakes, pain, and suffering, like we've mentioned. Part of self-compassion is recognizing that we are all part of this shared human experience of suffering and personal inadequacy. It is not something that we suffer alone. 
The third pillar is mindfulness over identification. Self-compassion requires that we are balanced in how we experience our emotions. We neither suppress them nor exaggerate them, but rather we are open to them, we acknowledge them, and we put them in a larger perspective. We mindfully observe them without suppressing them or over-identifying with them so much that we allow them to sweep us away. So basically what this is getting at here is if you are self-compassionate, you understand that you're going to make mistakes and you are kind to yourself when you make those mistakes, when you feel inadequate, when you realize you've messed up, when you embarrass yourself, when you are suffering, you recognize that and you don't attack yourself for it. You are your own best friend and you comfort yourself. You also recognize that this is part of our shared human experience. So you use that not to minimize your experience but you just recognize that there's others that are suffering as well. And you can find peace in that, recognizing that not only are others suffering, but others might be suffering worse than you. You can use that to put your life into perspective. And same thing with this idea of mindfulness over self-identification. You don't allow these emotions you have regarding your suffering or embarrassment or mistake to overpower you. You don't, also don't suppress them. You recognize them and you say, wow, I'm feeling really embarrassed because I just fell down a flight of stairs. Or I am feeling really guilty because of something that I recognize that I did wrong, or I'm feeling sad because this tragedy just happened in my life. You recognize that those emotions are real and you accept that you're having those, but you don't allow yourself to become so consumed with these emotions that you make another bad decision because of it, or you become so depressed that you can't function because you are just dwelling on these emotions so much. So that is a brief introduction to compassion and self-compassion, which we're going to be talking about today. So we have a couple papers that we're going to share. We'll start off with McKay talking about research paper number one. Awesome. This paper is called Visual Attention to Suffering After Compassion Training is Associated with Decreased Amygdala Responses, published in Frontiers of Psychology. Good. <laughs> First author is Ong, is how you say it in Chinese, but it's W-E-N-G and. English, you probably say Wang or something. I would say I would say Wang or something like that. But <laughs> sounds very uh, very American. But yeah, in Chinese that's probably the last name Ong. But anyways, Lapatate, Stadola, Rogers, and Davidson are all the other authors. This was published in 2018. So they wanted to understand how compassion affects visual attention to suffering, or what happens when we see suffering, and how our brain responds to that suffering. 56 participants were divided into two groups, the compassion group and the reappraisal group. Both groups used guided audio instructions for 30 minutes a day for two weeks. One thing I think was funny about this as I was reading through this paper, some of them used the internet, but some of them had CDs. And I think it's kind of funny to think about people like with their Walkmans and things like that. I don't know if you even remember those. But... Oh, totally. I had one and it was like a guided <laughs> meditation when I was like 13. That's awesome. CD. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. just throwback for any of you people like over yeah. the age of 25 listening to this. <laughs> And so the people in the compassion group practice cultivating feelings of compassion for various types of people. They wished them to be free from suffering and were instructed to pay attention to their bodily sensations, particularly around their heart. This sounds a lot like Buddhism. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Buddhism. Yeah, for sure. With a lot of the various aspects of positive psychology that we're going to be talking about and compassion and self-compassion is something that falls under the umbrella of positive psychology. A lot of it comes from Eastern culture, things that Buddhists do and Confucius and things like that. So there is definitely a lot of overlap for sure. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've just read a few books on Buddhism because, you know, I lived in Taiwan for mm -hmm. 
two years and I interacted with a lot of people who are Buddhists and, and that sounds a lot like it. Suffering and like the reality of suffering and the escape of suffering is kind of mm-hmm. the main ideas behind Buddhism. Yeah. So the participants in the reappraisal group practiced reinterpreting personally stressful events to reduce negative emotions that they experienced with that event. So they would think about the event from a different perspective, maybe from like a family member's perspective, and imagine a year had gone by and then like a positive outcome had occurred from this seemingly negative event. So the participants did three fMRI scans. The first one was a practice one where they completed all of the tasks and were just getting used to the fMRI. The second one was completed before they started the two-week training. And then the third one was completed after they'd finished the two-week training. In the fMRI, the participants were shown images depicting human suffering and some depicting non-suffering or neutral images. The participants in the compassion group were instructed to evoke feelings of compassion for the individuals while repeating compassionate phrases they had learned in the training. That's so, so Buddhist. That's what they do. Very cool. The reappraisal individuals were instructed to decrease negative emotions by reinterpreting the meaning of the image, such as saying, like, this is an image from a movie. This person is not really suffering. So trying to reinterpret it to kind of keep those negative emotions of seeing someone suffering away. Mm -hmm. The negative images depicted emotional distress, physical pain, or acts of violence, like someone getting burned, a crying child. The neutral images depicted people in non-emotional situations such as working or walking. Okay, so after all of that fMRI and compassion and reappraisal training, the researchers found For the participants in the compassion group, the longer they looked at the suffering images, the less activation they had in the amygdala. And if you remember from past episodes, the amygdala is really influential in fear. It's it's like our brain's fear center. And so it's interesting to see that if you were trying to be compassionate, the less fear activity your brain had as you looked at potentially fearful or disturbing, I guess, images. Mm -hmm. So the individuals with compassion training who looked at the images longer, they were less negatively affected by it. This means that individuals who had this compassion training and looked at images, potentially disturbing images, longer were less negatively affected by it, or they, you know, recovered from it, I guess, faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another thing to keep in mind too with this is there was no such relationship in the reappraisal group. So you might be thinking, well, of course, the longer you look at something, the less it's going to affect you because you're just going to get used to seeing it. But that was not the case for the individuals in the reappraisal group. The amygdala activity did not decrease as they looked at it. So that's an interesting finding that shows that these people who were trying to be compassionate, the more they looked at that image and they were sending these compassionate thoughts like they had been trained, the activation in their amygdala slowly decreased. Which is really cool. And it actually reminds me of a story in Buddhism. And I don't know how valid this story is. I'm not a Buddhist and I've just heard it. And so I'm going to tell it because it's, it has to do with this. So in the story, Buddha he kind of has an enemy, and it's Mara, M-A-R-A, I believe is how you spell it. And Buddha is at T, and Mara is like being his enemy, whatever that entails. And Buddha is just really calm, and he just invites Mara to T. And that helps him not be as bothered by Mara. 
Does mm-hmm. that make sense? At least that's what I got from the story. I'm, yeah. not, you know, the particulars, not quite sure because, again, I'm not Buddhist, but that's kind of what we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a really interesting story to bring up because that was one of my main takeaways, and that's one of Dr. Neff's main takeaways as well from compassion is it's not going to necessarily change anything that's happening around you. It's not going to actually alleviate that person's suffering, but it is going to change how you feel about that. So one thing that in a positive psychology class that I took, people brought up a lot with this idea of compassion is, especially in Christian cultures, we believe that suffering and trials can help us become better people. And that, I mean, it's not unique to Christianity, but this idea that someone going through something difficult can make them better. Yes, that definitely can be true for many individuals. However, you being compassionate towards them isn't going to necessarily alleviate their suffering. You just sitting here like these individuals were in this compassion training, they were wishing these images well, and they were being compassionate towards these images. That didn't take away the suffering from these images. These people were far, far away. They had their picture taken at a different time. However, these individuals had less activation in their fear center, so they were affected personally by it. So that is one of the main takeaways of compassion, is despite any good that might come from your actions, you acting on that compassion to help alleviate suffering, you will be better off, just like Buddha was. He felt better about his adversary, and you will feel better about the things going on around you as well. That's something to keep in mind with compassion. Yeah, and from what I understand, Buddhist teaching is you kind of lean into suffering, like the way Buddha invited Mara to tea. He was like, he leaned into it. He invited into tea. And at least from what I understand in Buddhism, you like analyze suffering and you accept it and you say, wow, let's look at this and think about it and think about it from other people's perspective, which is very like this compassion training that they did, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at it and feeling it and noticing it in your body we see from this paper that it tends to decrease amygdala activation, which Mm -hmm. is significant. Yeah. So moving on to the next thing we want to talk about, moving a little inwards now with self-compassion. Dr. Neff has another paper called Self-Compassion, Self-Esteem, and Well-Being. It was published in 2011 in Social and Personality Psychology Compass. So I want to start off with another quote from this paper. Dr. Neff just has a really great way of words. She says it better than I could. So she says, Imagine that you're an amateur singer-songwriter and you invite your friends and family to see you perform at a nearby coffee house that showcases local talent. After the big night, you ask everyone how they thought it went. You were average, is the reply. How would you feel in this scenario? Ashamed? humiliated, like you were a failure? In our incredibly competitive society, being average is unacceptable. We have to be special and above average to feel we have any worth at all. The problem, of course, is that it is impossible for everyone to be above average at the same time. This means that we tend to inflate our self-evaluations and put others down so that we can feel superior in comparison, all in the name of maintaining our self-esteem. For instance, research has shown that fully 90% of drivers think they're more skilled than their roadmates. Even people who've caused a car accident think they're superior drivers. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's me. I'm in that 90% for sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too, for sure. I'm way better than most drivers. (laughs) Yeah, so we, we have this idea that we're always above average. She continues, this paper will argue that striving for high self-esteem can sometimes be counterproductive and that self-compassion may offer a healthier and more sustainable way to feel good about oneself. End quote. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. So... 
in this paper, she basically argues that rather than seeking self-esteem, we should seek self-compassion. Self-esteem is an evaluation of our worthiness as individuals, a perceived competence in domains of importance, as psychologist William James put it. So basically how we evaluate ourselves in relation to other individuals, how we value ourselves as an individual, and our perceived competence and things that we find important. So if you are really bad at soccer, but you don't care about soccer, that's not going to affect your self-esteem. But if you really care about basketball and you're bad at basketball, that's probably going to negatively affect your self-esteem is what William James is saying. So self-esteem is often highly impacted by the opinions of others. Some research shows that our self-esteem can even be more impacted by our acquaintances than by our close loved ones. And then Dr. Neff, after kind of summarizing self-esteem, mentions that there are many issues with self-esteem. First, she says, it is resistant to change, so there are many programs designed to raise self-esteem that fail. Second, self-esteem is the outcome of doing well, not the cause of doing well. And this is an important distinction to make that Dr. Neff makes. So the pursuit of self-esteem leaves people susceptible to the better-than-average effect like we were talking about. Most drivers think they are better than the average, which is impossible. Most people see themselves as funnier, more logical, more popular, better-looking, nicer, more trustworthy, wiser, and even more intelligent than others. But this is problematic because it can hinder our progress in areas of our lives that need improvement. So if you are a really bad driver, but you think you are the best driver on the planet, you're probably not going to do anything to improve your driving skills, even if they need improvement. So having high self-esteem can also cause us to get aggressive or hostile towards others when we feel they aren't giving us the praise or respect we feel we deserve. We may blame poor performance on others and ignore negative feedback because we feel it is unreliable or biased. So we think we're the best driver ever, but we're really not that great. So when, when we cut someone off, we blame it on them. We get hostile towards someone in the back seat for getting nervous about our driving because we feel that we're the best drivers ever and that no one should ever question a driving move we make. That's totally me and my wife. <laughs> it's totally me too. I'm sorry, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's totally me and my I'm wife. Also, I'm also sorry, Becca, if you're listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of us can relate to this. I mean, this is a very, very common problem. We grow up learning that we should have really high self-esteem. And when our self-esteem is low, people try and help us fix that. But self-esteem can also lead to conflict between groups of people. Naturally, we belong to groups that we feel are superior to others. And when that superiority is challenged, it can result in a conflict. I can think of like school rivalries, for example. If you feel your school is better simply because you go there. And if that is challenged, you might go throw eggs at the other high school, for example. I don't know, something like that. But this can cause conflict between groups of people. That's obviously a silly example, like egging a high school. I mean, don't do that. But it's not that big of a deal in like the end result of the cosmos. But there are lots of really impactful conflicts between people that happen just because they feel that their group is better than the other group. However, self-esteem is not all bad. People with high self-esteem are generally happier, more optimistic, and more motivated, and they experience less depression, anxiety, and negative mood. So with these positive aspects of self-esteem, Dr. Neff proposes that self-compassion has the positives of self-esteem, but it doesn't have the downfalls. Self-compassion is strongly associated with greater life satisfaction, emotional intelligence, social connectedness, learning goals, wisdom, personal initiative, curiosity, happiness, optimism, as well as less self-criticism, depression, anxiety, fear of failure, thought suppression, perfectionism, and disordered eating behaviors. So that's a huge list. And if you notice in that list, all of the benefits of self-esteem were included in this list of the benefits of self-compassion. However, self-compassion doesn't have these downfalls that self-esteem does. 
So in contrast to self-esteem, self-compassion is not competitive. Rather than reinforcing our ego boundaries like self-esteem does, it's something that brings people together. We become not only our own best friend, but each other's best friend as well. When we fail, self-compassion is there to comfort us and help us move forward precisely when self-esteem is likely to fail us. And then another quote from Dr. Neff is, while self-compassion is related to well-being because it helps people feel safe and secure, self-esteem is related to well-being in part because it helps people to feel superior and self-confident. So with that, Dr. Neff, it wouldn't be a, a noggin podcast episode if we didn't have two experiments to share. So with this review and this argument of self-compassion over self-esteem, Dr. Neff shares a couple experiments, and I just wanted to share one of those. So quick question. I'm just thinking about the pendulum and how I feel like maybe Dr. Neff is describing self-esteem as like one high end of the spectrum. And then the other end is like, okay, someone just called me dumb. And so I feel really bad. So I'm going to have self-compassion. So I'm going to go and eat five gallons of ice cream because I really love ice cream. <laughs> is that like, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So that's a good thing to bring up. That's another thing that Dr. Neff talks about is self-compassion is not the same thing as self-pity and it's not the same thing as self-indulgence. Okay. So okay. what you're getting at here, self-pity exaggerates one's problems and it forgets that others are going through similar things. Whereas self-compassion, like we've talked about, recognizes the common humanity that we mentioned and recognizes that suffering is part of the human experience that brings us all together. So rather than mm, yeah. sitting and thinking, man, I'm the only person that's ever been called dumb, that this is the worst day of my life, being self-compassionate recognizes like, wow, yeah, I feel hurt because this person called me dumb. However, I know that I am not dumb. And you would talk to yourself as if you were your own best friend. I mean, think about it. If your best friend came to you and says, hey, this bully just called me dumb, what would you say to them? That's what you would say to yourself when you're being self-compassionate. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the thoughts that I get when people say like, oh, love yourself. I mean, I get a little antsy because I'm like, uh, like, is that really the best thing? Y yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so I, I like how she makes that distinction because self-indulgence, I think it's easy, at least for me and for others to confuse self-compassion with self-indulgence, but they're different. Right. Yeah. So self-compassion isn't necessarily, from what you're saying and what Dr. Neff says is that it's not like just treating yourself like a baby and doing whatever you want all the time, but mm -hmm. it's treating yourself like a responsible human being and an adult and, you know, your own best friend and doing the things that would be the very best things for you to do in those situations for your health, well-being, etc. Right. And that's another thing that is important with the distinction between self-indulgence. In our society, we hear a lot about self-care and things like that, eating a gallon of ice cream and watching TV all day. But when self-indulgence tells us to be nice to ourselves in air quotes by sitting around and watching TV and eating ice cream, self-compassion tells us to do what is actually best for us because we care about ourselves. So when there is that urge to eat all that ice cream or do whatever it is that self-indulgence tells us to do, as our own best friend with self-compassion, we recognize, hey, that's not the best thing for me. I know that I had a rough day, but the best thing for me, it's not watching TV all day and just kind of making the problem worse by feeling more sad about myself because I didn't do anything today. It's going and exercising, going and seeing friends, doing things that are actually going to make you happy. And that's not to say that like taking a relaxing day is bad for you, but it's an important distinction to make. Self-compassion is not this self-indulgence that society often portrays and says that we should do. Exactly. If you were watching Netflix for weeks on end and not getting out of the house and, you know, not running, not spending time with your wife and doing things that make you happy, Ben, I would definitely come up to you and be like, as your friend, I would say, hey, that's not necessarily the best thing for you. I would suggest that you do other things. That's what I feel like 
that's helped me thinking about it the best friend because sometimes best friends tell you things that you don't want to hear and sometimes <laughs> you got to do that to yourself too where you're like right. you know what i don't want to do this right now but it's the compassionate thing to do for myself even if it's maybe tough sometimes mm -hmm. And along those same lines, too, with the distinction between self-esteem and self-compassion, our best friends might tell us things that we don't want to hear all the time. So my wife might tell me that I made a bad move driving. And I don't want to hear that because I consider myself to be above average in driving. <laughs> However, self-compassion recognizes, yeah, I make mistakes and that's okay because I'm human. We're all human. We're all making mistakes together and that's okay. Most of us are going to be somewhere in the middle ground when it comes to our driving skills and that is totally okay and we need to accept that self-esteem rejects that because it's hurt by that but self-compassion doesn't care i like that sweet okay on to the article yes. sorry for distracting no you. worries that was a great tangent so in this study participants were asked to recall a previous failure rejection or loss that made them feel badly about themselves in the self-compassion condition participants were instructed to write prompts designed to lead them to think about the negative event in ways that led them to think about the three aspects of self-compassion we had discussed so they sat down, there were some prompts, and there was those three pillars that we talked about, and they were answering questions relating to those pillars that the questions were designed to make them think about self-compassion, or to think in a self-compassionate way. In the self-esteem condition, participants responded to prompts that were meant to bolster their self-esteem. So they were reminded of their positive characteristics and helping them interpret the event in a way that did not put them in a bad light. The results showed that participants in the self-compassion group had less negative emotions when they thought about the past event and took more personal responsibility for the event. So this was interesting. In another study too, I won't necessarily go into the details, but in a similar study, participants reported that in the self-compassion group, they said things to themselves like, it's okay, we all make mistakes, very compassionate things. And then in the self-esteem group, when they thought about this mistake they had made, they had some very choice words for themselves, like you dummy, or I can't believe I did that. I am so stupid and things like that. Very harsh things that are not going to be very helpful for you. So through all this, Dr. Neff's conclusion is that self-compassion provides greater emotional resilience and stability than self-esteem. So when we mess up, rather than worry about your self-esteem, be self-compassionate and be your own best friend. And don't worry so much about your competency in relation to others or the perceived standard that you need to achieve. We all are human. We're all going to make mistakes. Most of us are average at most things. And that is okay because we are all human and we are all average. And we should unpathologize that word. <laughs> End of soapbox. <laughs> average. That's awesome. I learned a lot from talking with you today, Ben, I think something that I learned is that self-compassion and self-indulgence are different and as well as self-esteem and self-compassion are different as well. Mm -hmm. Seems like self-compassion is that very balanced middle of the road, not too harsh, but also not too soft right. response to any sort of negative event that happens to yourself. And for me, I tend to, you know, fall on the more austere side of things that's just my personality is when i do something stupid i'm like oh regret you know just like oh i should have known better just kind of those thoughts creep into my head instead of like oh i need to go you know eat three gallons of ice cream i don't, I don't really think that <laughs> some people do some people think that way but i'm on the other end and so i want to you know swing kind of swing back into that self-compassion middle and really try to think of myself you know when i make a mistake think about okay what would my best friend say to me you know, what would my, what would Allie say to me and how would she respond to this? Mm -hmm. And, and as well as for me, I've also thought, okay, how can I be more compassionate to Allie 
my wife, but also the people around me. And, you know, like, what does this person really need? Like, how can I be a grandpa? That's what I feel like, you know, self-compassion <laughs> is. I feel like it's like, okay, it's a grandpa, you know? Yeah. It's just like, grandpas don't care. They're just, right. you know, grandpa and grandmas, they're just like, we love our grandkids. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, that's what I want to do. How can I be like a grandpa for everyone? Where mm-hmm. grandpa's just like, you're the best. Like you can do it. I know you still got to take responsibility, but like, you know, that was tough. Everybody makes mistakes, but you, you can move forward. And yeah. I feel like that's how, I mean, that's my picture of a grandpa. I don't know. Yeah. I think <laughs> the, the perfect embodiment of self-compassion is uncle Iroh from Avatar, you know, just like the <laughs> loving, always going to accept you, but never afraid to tell you what you need to hear what will be good for you yeah so i think that's a great takeaway another thing to keep in mind with this is self-compassion and compassion aren't things that many of us naturally have these are things that we practice and we learn so a lot of us grow up with this self-esteem mindset and we can unlearn that just as we learned the self-esteem mindset we can be easier on ourselves when we need it we can learn to accept feedback that we don't necessarily want to hear and we can learn to be more compassionate towards others and to ourselves as well. So once again, self-compassion and compassion won't necessarily alleviate the suffering that is in the world all around us, but it can help us feel better about it. So extending your thoughts and emotions and even doing something to try and alleviate someone's suffering is going to make the world a better place, as well as being your own best friend, extending your arm to yourself in the same way you would do it to a really good friend or a loved one will help make your life much better. Yeah, I I also want to invite Mara to tea. That story I like a lot. And that's what I want to do with things that maybe are tough for me or things that like I naturally want to avoid or memories that I want to avoid, like those embarrassing memories. I want to lean into the suffering behind it or the awkwardness of it and say, okay, I want to be compassionate and try and increase my compassion that way. So then I am, you know, receiving those benefits of decreasing amygdala activity. Yeah. Great. I think this has been a great discussion on compassion and self-compassion. Stay tuned for a future episode. Uh, It'll be a bonus episode. We're going to do a compassion meditation. So many of these compassion trainings that a lot of this research is based on is compassion meditations to help you all put this into practice and to help you cultivate compassion and self-compassion. We'll be posting in future weeks a compassion meditation that you can listen to and follow along and help yourself cultivate compassion. You have been listening to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We have shared with you only a few articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject. Though we wish we could go more in depth, we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic. We don't claim to know everything, but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading this research. I'm McKay. And I'm Ben. And we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you.